This is Lekka. I'm Lucy Dearlove. Um, why don't I start? And I was trying to think when I started in the kitchen. And it must be one of my earliest memories. Because as a small child, it was the middle of World War II. And we were miles from anywhere. The nearest farmhouse was half a mile away. My father had gone off to the war. My mother was always in the garden, which I did not like. And so I was always, which I really loved, in the kitchen with our old cook called Emily. And the kitchen was where things happened and where there were tastes of this and that. And it was always warm and it smelled nice. And I mean, it really always, right from the beginning, was the most tempting place I could find. Anne Willen has more than 60 years experience as a teacher, author and culinary historian and over 30 books to her name today. Although born and raised in England, she's achieved great success in America, holding the position of food editor at the Washington Star and working at Gourmet magazine. In the 70s, she founded L'École de Cuisine La Varenne in Paris, and she was also a close friend and colleague of Julia Child. With her late husband, Mark, Anne has amassed an incredible collection of cookbooks over the course of her career, some of which date back to the 15th century, and which have formed the backbone of lots of her work. I was offered the chance to speak to Anne because she's just released a new book, Women in the Kitchen, 12 Essential Cookbook Writers Who Defined the Way We Eat from 1661 to Today. So I was looking forward to asking her about that, but first I wanted to hear more about how Anne started in the kitchen. Growing up in rural northeast England during the Second World War, watching her family's cook Emily prepare food for the family while her father was at war. Emily was doing food for the three of us. Ingredients were very short. There wasn't much variety. And Emily's specialty, which suited me just fine, was cakes and biscuits and scones and nice sweet things. The week, as traditionally, um, the weekend was for relaxation. Monday was wash day. Tuesday was ironing day. Wednesday was market day at the nearest small town called North Allerton. And Thursday was baking day. And that was my most favorite day of the week. And um, when most was going on and with a bit of luck, some tastings, And then I was not, none of us were allowed to eat anything for 24 hours, um, so only on Friday. And I was very disappointed, but that was the way things were. And I discovered much, much later in an 18th century cookbook that people, the audience should never be allowed to taste anything baked until the following day because it got drier and it fed more people. 
that had continued, in other words, for 300 years. That must have been torture. <laughs> yes, it was, because the kitchen wasn't very large. And for one thing, it smelled good. But where I was always parked in the corner was right beside where everything was laid out on the countertop. There's actually a funny coincidence here that um, I actually also grew up relatively near Northallerton. That's amazing. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in a little village called Kirk Levington. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes, just behind us it was. So I know Northallerton very well. My parents still go to the market every week there, which is a fantastic food market. I'm delighted to hear it because I haven't been in Northallerton on market day for many, many, many years. (laughs) It's still flourishing, is it? It's absolutely still flourishing. They're particularly big fans of the fish van which has amazing fresh seafood. So if you ever do find yourself uh, in North Allison on Market Day, I definitely recommend some fresh fish. Well, that's lovely. There never was fish fan when I was there. <laughs> I think he's a relatively recent addition, but he's great. You are obviously a great expert in French cookery, having founded uh, La Varenne. But I wondered what it is for you that characterises English food and English cooking? Well, English cooking is simple. It's warm-hearted and nurturing. And to me, rather household. And at its very best, rather childlike. (laughs) It's a nice simple approach that you say, oh, but how delicious. I really loved how you summed up English food there, because I've always been struck, having grown up in the late 80s and and 90s, with how much of what I ate at home, what my parents cooked, was from other countries in origin, so obviously pasta and my mum cooked a mean nazi goreng, which was bizarre because they have no connection to Malaysia. Yes. And I wondered if what's the greatest change you've seen in English food culture as a whole over the development of your cookbook collection? Have you seen a great influx in writing from people of other cultures, bringing a new richness to English food? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I date back a long way. I'm 82, and I date back to starting cooking in World War II, where we would no more have thought of cooking even a French recipe, except possibly Hollandaise, not even coque It was all English cooking, and it has become Oh, I mean, totally globalised, but wonderfully international and exciting. I mean, I'm looking across at the few books that I have here. I was lucky enough to be asked to marry, but to marry a man who loved books. And so uh, when we were married, 
I only had about half a dozen cookbooks. And Mark said, but if you're going to cook, you must have some cookbooks. And I was working in New York at the time at Gourmet Magazine, which was famous and, and, and had a, a distinguished library. And um, he made me take him round one day, one Saturday morning, to look at the cookbooks. And they would have had possibly three or four hundred really very good books. Mark sat down and wrote down something like 200, 300 books, which I knew well because I used them every day. And I could point to the ones that were going to be helpful in different subjects and in different aspects. And Mark, who loved books, went out because he traveled quite a lot. Uh, everywhere he went, he would explore the book dealers in different places and pick up cookbooks. And that's was the beginning of what is now at the Getty Museum in California. Um, oh, it's about 2,000 books of all kinds and descriptions, a few really splendid antiquarian books. Um, and uh, you can probably hear my voice has changed as I talk about it. <laughs> um, some of them are the great, great cooks of history, dating back to the Renaissance, just a few of them, back to the Renaissance. I kept one of the oldest, most of them are now lodged at the Getty Museum and the oldest one I have here is 1590 and is really very famous um, by Bartolomeo Scacchi and it's in Italian, beautiful Italian script but what it's known for are the wonderful, wonderful illustrations of early kitchens and kitchen equipment, knives and um, pots of all different sizes and shapes. And the casseroles, um, the ones that have feet, always have three feet, not four feet, because they'll sit flat on an uneven hearth. Really um, splendid recipes that work just as well now as they did in those days. And so that's long been a treasure. But I'll tell you who else. It was the second good book that we bought, and that is Hannah Glass. Now, you must know Hannah. Well, I do know Hannah from your book, I have to say. I have to say it was a new uh, name to me. Well, there are modern facsimiles from Prospect Books, the English publisher, so it really takes you back, not just to the wording of the recipes, but to what the book looked like. 
And it, it's a really very attractive book. I am proud to say it is copied from the first edition that Mark bought so long ago. Hannah is one of the 12 women that you have written about in your brand new book, Women in the Kitchen. Could you tell me a little bit about what inspired you to look at the contribution that women who were cookbook writers have made in in particular? Well, I wrote a book a while ago called The Cookbook Library, which is a history of cookbooks. And when I was writing it, I noticed starting really very early on, though not as early as um, some of the men, I noticed that there were a lot of women cookbooks by women that were not ignored exactly, but certainly not regarded with such honour and attention as the men. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And I also thought, well, I mean, damn it. So um, I thought, well, because Mark had been so good about collecting books, we had a lot of women's books in the collection. And so I started investigating. And that's sort of where it all began. And how did you go about choosing the 12 that ended up in the book? It's such a variety of names from Hannah Glass, as we've mentioned, to Edna Lewis, Marcella Hazan, so many incredible people. How did you narrow it down to 12? I mean, if there'd been more, I would have had more women. But the ones, the 12 that are in the book, really stood out as leaders in their time. I mean, I'm looking at them now. The first one, these, by the way, are all original cookbooks in English. The first one is Hannah Woolley, 1671. She lived just outside London. And her book is already well-informed and clearly by an educated woman. I, I mean, from a good deal earlier than that, women had been keeping notebooks in the kitchen. I mean, you probably have a notebook of the recipes that you use a lot. I do, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that habit must have been started with the earliest women who were literate, which is 15th, 16th century. And they would just have been some notes called, by the way, technically speaking, a commonplace book. But it really wasn't a commonplace book. It was a notebook. And you didn't um, amass one unless you were really well-educated and therefore, in the early days, in a prosperous family. Yes, you touch on that in in the introduction, don't you, that there are certain criteria that these women must have met, in a sense, to 
be able to produce these books because they would have to be educated and highly literate as you've mentioned and you know probably from a middle class family or an upper class family to be able to have time to write even exactly and I, d- I don't know uh, if you have an answer to this, but I wonder if you've ever found anything out about the, like, are there, are there archives of the women who were lower class and maybe did still keep a notebook, but it wasn't published? Do you have any, any records of those sorts of books? I don't, but um, there certainly may be some. Mm. There will be, particularly nowadays, museums and libraries who specialize in women's um, occupations and studying uh, the lives of early housewives. Alan Davidson. Alan is unfortunately no longer with us, but was a great scholar and one of the first people to get in to a study of cookbooks as well as of cooking. He founded the Oxford Symposium. You oh, know, right, yes. Yes, well, Alan was the founder of that. I see. He founded Petit Propos Culinaire mm. and Prospect Books. Alan has also written um, a definitive biography of Hannah Gast. It was Alan who, and other scholars too, who found out a lot about Hannah Glass. Wonderfully romantic figure. And I know you were going to ask me who was my favourite cook. <laughs> Hannah Glass, because she's such fun. She came from Northumberland. She was illegitimate. She was brought up in a great house coming from North Yorkshire, the Northumberlands, just a stone's throw. And I was born in Newcastle. So, And Hannah ran away when she was 16. She eloped with a penniless soldier. They ended up in London. She wrote the first really famous cookbook, Better Hedge My Bets and Say in English by a woman. The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy, 1747. But she's a a wonderful character. She went broke. She went to jail and was declared bankrupt. She um, was also dressmaker to Caroline, the Princess of Wales. Well, she sounds wonderful, and I think she's a worthy favourite. Uh, are there any recipes of hers that you particularly love that you've included in the book? Oh, well, I have to look. Well, there was one that I um, chose, which is potted salmon. Uh, for one thing, it makes any American giggle, because potted means that you're mildly drunk. <laughs> Does that mind here too? I've never heard that. <laughs> Pottage salmon means um, preserved in a pot. And uh, it was preserving for preserving, um, oh, often fish, but meat. I mean, there's still pot. You can still get potted meat, can't you? 
Yes, definitely. Yes, there you are. Um, and you bake the meat or fish or poultry very slowly with lots of fat. Um, the French would call it confit mm. and pack it in a jar when it's very, very, very well done and therefore you've cooked all the nasty bacteria uh, and you cook it with whatever seasonings and nice coriander and bit of garlic and whatever flavorings you like. Pack it really tightly in a nice clean jar uh, so that you don't have any air bubbles. You pour melted fat or butter on the top so that you seal out again any air reaching the meat. Close it with a nice tight lid and it'll keep for in a cool place. I mean, I put it in the fridge, but um, if it were sort of 40, 50 degrees, it'd be okay mm. in the summer. And it'll keep for a year. There's a lovely quote in your introduction that I noted down because it was something that hadn't occurred to me before and I thought it was really interesting. And you wrote, women's recipes tend to be simpler, warm-hearted, easier to execute, requiring less equipment and calling for less expensive ingredients. And that's as a result of women being traditionally the most, the, the main home cook, whereas men were more traditionally more prevalent in professional kitchens. It feels these days like those lines are starting to blur slightly and I wondered if you had any opinion on whether that's changing how recipe books are written. Yes, I think that women take on the whole a very different approach though. This is a generalisation and oh, a proposal up for discussion. I think women are, that awful word, nurturing. Women like to look after people, make um, the people who are eating their recipes feel good and happy and comfortable. And of course, women um, remain often traditionally in charge of feeding the children and planning meals for the whole household that are not too complicated, that are easy to eat and to sell to the audience, things that aren't too complicated. So women's cooking does take a different approach, still, I think. I think that's very interesting. I think it's a, a really interesting proposal to think about, as you say. It, it's something that could be pursued a long way, couldn't it? Anne Willen's new book, Women in the Kitchen, is out now, published by Simon & Schuster. 
I love speaking to Anne about this book and about her work and her life in general. I'm currently researching a forthcoming like a project about kitchens and so I've been thinking a lot about the traditional roles of men and women in the kitchen. Not to get into it too much here, but so much of modern kitchen design was influenced by work that prioritised efficiency. I.e. if women were more efficient in the kitchen, they had more time to be better wives and mothers. But now, domestic cooking is aspirational for men too. So what does that mean for how kitchens might look in 20, 50, 100 years time? And I'm equally interested in cookbook writing and how the previous distinction between women writing recipes from the home and men writing recipes from the professional kitchen has blurred in recent years. I think also the ongoing conversation about whose books get to be published and whose stories get to be told is relevant here too. It's fascinating to read about the women from Anne's exhaustive cookbook collection and how they've shaped recipe writing and hear how history is told through their work. But, as I discussed with Anne in the interview, I'm equally fascinated by the other women who didn't get books published, but whose work may still have shaped the recipes of those who did. We're in a different era now, and historians of the future will have a vast archive of self-published work through blogs and other things online where people share recipes. But to publish something officially is to give it a bigger platform, to prioritise its story and its author. That is something I think food publishing needs to reflect on more seriously if it's to be truly representative of the UK's widely and beautifully varied food culture. Thanks for listening to this episode. And thank you to Anne for such a thought-provoking conversation. I'm sad we didn't get to meet in person, but it was still so lovely chatting. For the past couple of weeks, I've had a listener survey live. Thank you so much to everyone who's responded so far. It's brought a real happy tear to my eye reading about your favourite episodes and what you enjoy about the podcast. I wanted to do it so I can have a better idea of what you enjoy and what you might like to change. And so that way I can continue to keep bringing you podcasts and other lecker related things that you hopefully enjoy. So if you do have a minute in the next couple of weeks to fill out the survey, I would really appreciate it. I'll put a direct link in the description of this episode so you can click through. Thanks so much for listening. You can find me as ever on Twitter and Instagram at Lekker Podcast. And if you do enjoy the podcast, I would appreciate it so much if you could review it on Apple Podcasts and uh, give it a rating as well. It really does help other people discover it. It pushes it up in their search. And yeah, there's a reason why every single podcast you're listening to is begging you to do it. So if you do find the time, I would be eternally grateful. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time.